0: Well, if you would, please take your Bible and turn in that Bible to Romans chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And in that Bible, it should be on page 944. We're going to look today at Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. And let me read that for us. I'm actually going to start where we were last week at Romans 8, 1, and I'll read through verse 4. It says this, I think one of the most common misunderstandings that Christians have about the gospel is that the gospel's purpose is just to get people converted and that then once the conversion has happened, then you leave that good news of Jesus Christ behind and you start to go on to you know the, the uh, uh, seven steps to a better marriage kind of things and all of the rules for life of how to, how to go about the Christian life Now, all of those things are there in the scriptures of how we should be living the Christian life. But the the reality is that those things, whenever it's, it's telling us, here's what you should do, those things are what we would categorize as law. They're good. They're good advice. They resonate with our hearts because God's law is spiritual. And we as Christians do exactly what it said in Romans 7, even as we're struggling against sin, we delight in the law of God in our inner being. So we get that it's good, but what we don't need to be tricked into is thinking, okay, now that I believed the gospel at some point in the past, now that I've been converted through faith in Christ, now I'll leave the good news behind and I'll just move forward with good advice. That's, that's saying, I don't need the gospel anymore, now I'll just live by the law. And so, so sometimes you may wonder, well, as we're going through Romans, why do we just keep having sermon after sermon about the gospel? Well, because that's the whole point. We, we don't move past the gospel as Christians. What, what we're called to do is, is we're called to see, hey, this is not something that I, I leave in the past or that I just use to try to, to get people converted. Um, we do need to try to use it to get people converted. That's called evangelism. We've got to do that all the time, right? Uh, but, but it's not just a beginning of the Christian life thing. It's an ongoing, hey, even though I am trying, I am seeking by the Spirit to walk according to what God has said in his righteous rules, I also every day need to come back and I need to soak in the hot tub of the good news of Jesus Christ. That That's what it is. If you're thinking to yourself, I just leave the good news behind, then what you're going to do in the Christian life is you're going you're, you're to, uh, you know, pick up all of these pieces of good advice and good rules. I hope at least you'll pick up some of them. And, and you'll, you'll try to live the Christian life, but you'll find yourself in Romans 7 crying out, wait a second. Why is it that as I'm trying to live the Christian life and I'm delighting in the law of God in my inner being, that I still find a law within my my sinful flesh that's fighting against that? And you're going to be all torn up, and you're going to be in battle, and, and you're going to wonder, well, where is the relief going to come from? Well, you you've got to say, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That was back at the end of Romans seven, Romans seven twenty-five. And what that teaches us right there is even as we're going about the Christian life seeking to live according to his righteous, good, we love them laws, at the same time, you've got to get back. You've got to rest. You've got to know, hey, regardless of how I have dropped the ball, lost it, been beaten up by my sinful flesh and by all kinds of spiritual battles that I've been in, I can sit and I can relax in the end of the day in the hot tub of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so as we came to the end of chapter 7 and there was that struggle against sin, we came then to chapter 8 and saw that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. This is good news that we need as a balm to our souls every day to look to the person of Christ and say, He paid it all, He finished it. And so as we come to verse 3, we're going to see that this is something where as much doing as we want to do, as much doing as we ought to be doing, ultimately the doing that counts for all eternity is the doing that God has done, not the doing that we could do. So look at verse 3, Romans 8, 3, for God has done, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So I want us to think, first of all, about how God is the one who does the gospel. You and I are not the ones who do the gospel. God is the one who does the gospel. What does that mean? Well, there's the law, what you ought to do. There's the gospel, what God has done for you. And this is saying, this verse is saying, there are things that the law could not do. The reason the law could not do them is because it was weakened by the flesh, meaning that we are sinners. What is it that the law can't do? What is it that God's good rules, God's good advice cannot accomplish? Well, here's the thing that it can't accomplish it can't accomplish justifying sinners. The law cannot make you right with God. That's the problem. It's not a problem with the law, by the way. It's not at all a problem with God's rules. The problem is with our sinful flesh. And that's what it says, the law weakened by the flesh. Nothing wrong. He had just said a few verses ago, the law is spiritual. The Holy Spirit is the one who breathed out the words of the instructions of God of what you ought to do. Not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, too. There's a lot of law. There's a lot of instructions, and we love those. But those instructions, they're weakened by the fact that we are weak. Not by the fact that God is weak, but by the fact that we are weak. It it, it is just repeating this concept here that we've seen already in Romans over and over, that the problem with the law is not the law. The problem is the breakers of the law. That's the problem. I met a lady last week. Uh, had a nice conversation with her. Who plays? Uh, her son plays lacrosse uh, at the high school level on a like a nationally competitive team, and I was I was just impressed with that. I was, you know, he's like flying all over the country to play in these these lacrosse tournaments, and and I kind of realized like I, I don't think that I could play lacrosse. Now, why could I not play lacrosse? Well, I mean, I'm sure that I could figure out something about it right but I don't think I could play competitive national level lacrosse now if I were to pick up a book about the rules of lacrosse I could probably learn the rules right now I really don't know them at all but I'm sure that if I if I devoted a bunch of time and energy to saying I am going to learn the rules of the game of lacrosse I could have those rules really down in my head I, I could figure it out. You could too. And then even beyond just the basic rules of the game, I could probably do some more studying and, and find out from experts and coaches in lacrosse, you know, wh- what are the proper techniques and, and what are the, the proper kinds of team formations and how, how should all of these things be done? And, and I could probably study really hard and, and really learn, like, here is what you are supposed to do here are the rules, and here is how you are supposed to carry it out in a winning way. But you know what? If I, if I spent a few months just really, really studying all that, and then I stepped out onto a lacrosse field, I am not going to win. And I am, I am not going to help my team. I am not going to lead my team to a national lacrosse championship. And you know what the problem there is? No matter how well I know the rules of lacrosse, I personally am just not that good of an athlete. I am not a gifted athlete. Some of you might be really, really gifted athletes. You know, you might be that guy where you step in the door and everybody's like, oh, the athlete's here. Oh. <laughs> that is not me. I am weak in the flesh. So, no matter how well I learn those rules, I am just not the guy that you're going to want to recruit to your team because you're going to say he is weak. It's not a problem with the game of lacrosse. It's not a problem with the rules of lacrosse. It's not a problem with all of the great advice and techniques of the game. It's a problem with me. There is no problem with the law of God. The problem is your flesh. The problem is that you were born in Adam, in the sinful flesh, and that even as a Christian... Even as a Christian who has a new heart, who is no longer enslaved to sin, who's no longer defined by your sin nature, who's now called a saint, even as a Christian, you still have carried with you that sinful nature and that old self and that body of sin, and the law of God is still in you, even believing Christian, is, the law is still weakened by the flesh. So that Paul can come up to the Galatians I say, you know, I just imagine him walking up and saying this, but he wrote it in a letter. It's in Galatians 3. He could say to you, you foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or another way to put that is, having begun your walk with God by the power and the work of God, do you think you're now going to become perfect in your walk with God? by the power of your flesh to obey the law? Absolutely not. Now, he's not saying don't obey God. He's not saying, you know, go out on some kind of a binger tonight or something. He's saying this. He's saying you cannot switch out of the mode of gospel now and saying I left that behind and I'm going now into the mode of, you know, muscular Christianity where I can build myself up and I can do all of the the things that God would have me to do. I can do this in the power of my flesh. No, he says, your walk with Christ, even as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is going to be God at work in you. It's going to be God's work from start to finish. But primarily this begins with that basic truth of the gospel is that you can't get yourself right with God by your own obedience. You cannot be good enough. No matter how good you try to be, no matter how many little old ladies you walk across the street, no matter how many soup kitchens you sign up to volunteer at, no matter how much money you give away to good causes, no matter how many times you fly around the world to help the poor, all of the kinds of things that you can think of, no matter how many programs you sign up to help run a church, there is not in your flesh the capability of living up to God's perfect, righteous standards. The law can't do it. Only God can do it. What the law does, and what it's showing here is this, this first function of the law, it just shows that we need to be saved, that we are sinners who need a Redeemer. This goes back to Romans 3.20 where he kind of summed up a whole lot of what had come before that verse. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's why the law couldn't do it. It's weakened by the flesh. It just shows you to be a sinner. Think of it this way. If, if someone, if a prosecutor really, really decided that they wanted to personally come after you. Do you think that they would find any breaking of the law in your life? I'm going to tell you the answer is yes. And I'm not just talking about God's law. I'm talking about even something as simple as the laws of the land that we live in. We're not even able to keep all of those. Now, you, you may not be... Uh, you know, in a position where you're thinking, oh, I, I hope they don't catch me for crime X. And yet, if somebody really, really wanted to take you down, they could probably investigate your life and find some way where your life does not match federal law or state law or local laws, even if it's something as simple as that you have sped in your car. They, they could trail you until they catch you enough times that your license gets taken away, right? Even if it's something as simple as, I made a mistake on my tax form, they could take you down for that. It, 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 there There's all kinds of things, and in fact, even if you, you can't think of anything like that, there's probably a hundred laws that you've never heard of, that maybe haven't even been enforced in a long time, where if somebody were going to take all of the statutes of the land and examine you to try to take you down, they would find that you had broken those. So that's just to say, we can't even live up to the laws of the land. Now, by God's grace, we live in a country where you're not supposed to be investigated for being a person that, you don't, that people don't like. They're, they're only supposed to investigate actual crimes that they have evidence of. Instead of investigating, that's a person we want to get, right? But get this. God, in his law, already has every evidence of every crime. Not just that you've committed that has something to do with breaking the laws of the land, but every crime that you've committed that has to do with breaking his righteous, perfect, moral law you go and you compare yourself to the Ten Commandments, the, the, uh, the usual way that I think most Christians approach those is to say, well, let's figure out which two or three of those I, I need to work on the most. But, you know, whew, at least I'm, I'm not so bad at the other seven. But if you start digging down on what each of those Ten Commandments actually means the ways that they play out through the entire Bible and are applied to us, you're going to find that you have broken every single one of those commandments. And even if you had only broken one in one way, the book of James says whoever has broken one law has broken the whole law. You're a lawbreaker. God is everywhere. And God knows everything. God is an eyewitness to every crime you have ever committed against his law. Whether it's something that you've done in your outward works, something that you've said that you shouldn't have said, something that you have thought that you shouldn't have thought, even a desire that you shouldn't have desired in your heart. He's an eyewitness to every crime. He already has all the evidence. He is the creator. He's the judge. He's the executioner. That's why the law can't save you. It's because all it's going to do with a sinner is condemn you. But what this says is God has done what the law could not do. Here, here, here's, here's the good news, guys: that the same God who's the eyewitness to all of your crimes is also the one who can give you freedom. And a not guilty verdict. And not just a not guilty verdict, but a a righteous verdict. He, He can forgive your sin. He can give you eternal life where we've deserved eternal punishment. And he can continue to forgive our sin. And he can continue to bless us in Christ. God, the same God who is our judge, has also done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Here's a summary of it. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He already sent the law to do that. But he sent his son in order that the world might be saved through him. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Now, if you are one of those who believes, where it said, whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life, are you the one who did that? Are you the one who did the gospel? No. It, it says right here, this is the work of God. God does what the law cannot do. It doesn't say we do. It doesn't say God kind of gives you, a few, uh, you know, a few pushes forward and encourages you to do. It says God does. God does it. This is like if a criminal gets pardoned after they've committed a crime and they're sitting there in prison and they get a pardon from the governor. Well, yeah, they may stand up and walk out of the prison on their own two legs, but that doesn't mean that they did the gospel or that they did the pardon. We don't do the gospel. God is the one who has paid it all. And when he gives it to us, it frees us to come to him in love. Here's a way that it's put in 1 John 4.10. And this is love Not that we have loved God. That's something that we could do for God. But he says, here's where it's demonstrated, not in the things we do for God, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God does it. Now, be careful, because there are those out there who I think most of them are really well-meaning in a lot of ways, who will say things like, well, now that you've believed the gospel, you need to live out the gospel, I get what they're saying. Um, There was a time in my life when I kind of absorbed that language and used it myself a little bit, and I kind of regret that now. And and, and so I, I think a lot of it is something like this. God has shown you mercy, and so therefore you should show mercy to others. Yes, that is true, but that's not us doing the gospel. That's not us living out the gospel. By definition, the gospel is not something you can do. It's not something you can live out. It's something that God has done for us. It's a one-way thing. It is what we receive that we benefit from, from God. And then in response, yes, we we want to, to, to also love like he loves, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is the one who has done what the law, even the law of love even love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even love your neighbor as yourself, it could not do it. It could not justify us. But God has done it, and he's done it in Christ. So so God does the gospel, and how does he do it? Well, he does it in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Redeemer. So look at the second half of verse 3. He's done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and forced sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here's how God has done it. It's not just an abstract thing where God said, okay, I declare you free. Okay? What God has done is not just sort of some sort of a legal declaration. It is a legal declaration, but it's because he's actually done something in time and space and history, which is that Jesus, God the Son, came in the flesh, lived for us, died for us, and rose from the dead. I just, this morning I just read 1 John 1, and I just love the way that John puts it there, where he says that in him was life. <laughs> and he said, the life was Manifest we have seen it with our eyes we have touched it with our hands the, jesus came in the flesh this is what it says here by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh who is it that came in the flesh think think about that it says by sending his own son what does that mean This is something that, especially if you're talking with someone from a background of another religion, maybe Islam or Judaism or something like that, the idea of God having a son sounds awfully weird. It sounds like, okay, there's God, and then somehow some weird thing happened, and now God has a son who's another entity besides God who's kind of like God but not... Well, that's... Yeah, it's confusing in a way. But here's, here's what we mean when we say the Son. Here's what I should say what the Bible means when it says the Son. That God is in himself Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And he didn't start being three in one at some point in time. That's just who God is in himself. Always has been, is now always will be. God is three in one. And we, we say three persons in one God, or as, as the London Baptist Confession put it, uh, three subsistences in one substance. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I was trying to teach my daughter to say that the other day, and she really got a kick out of trying to say subsistences. But it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but this is the point. When, when Jesus was going and calling God his Father, do you know how the Jewish leaders responded to that? It says this in John 5. It says that they were seeking to kill him for that because in calling God his Father, he was making himself equal with God. So when we say Jesus is the Son of God... You need to realize that that fact and Jesus preaching that fact and Jesus affirming what he meant by that fact is the whole reason that they decided to kill him because he made it clear and they clearly understood he means that he is God. So when we say the Son of God, we're not talking about a separate entity from God. We're talking about the eternal Son of God, the eternal God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So that what, what we're saying here is that God, within himself, from eternity past, determined that the way that he would redeem these creatures that he had made who had fallen into sin, made in his likeness, fallen into sin and into death, the way that he would save us is by the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, coming to be our Redeemer. So God the Son, the Son of God has been sent by the Father, according to verse 3, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. This is talking about how, how the Son of God, who is eternally God, and has this divine nature that is eternal and unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible says. He took on human nature, in order to save us so that he is now and will forever be fully God and fully man, two distinct natures, human nature and God nature, and yet in one person forever. He is our Redeemer. This is who Jesus is. It says that he he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that he became a sinner. It means he he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came with the same human nature that we have and yet without sin. He didn't inherit that sinful nature from Adam. He was born of a virgin. He came without the sinful nature. He never sinned. He was tempted as we are in every respect and yet without sin. Here's what it says about it in Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's another way that the book of Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 4:15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin, which means even in his temptation that he never experienced a sinful desire. All the way through his entire life, he was in flesh like us, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was subject to death, just as our mortal bodies are subject to death. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not sinful in himself. Instead, he came for sin. Whose sin did he come for? Ours. Believer. Think about this. Jesus determined from eternity past that he was going to come and take on the weakness of the flesh, humble himself, and be born in the likeness of a servant so that he could take your ugliest sins and have them counted as his own and die for them and put them away forever. That is some love right there. That, that's where we can look and just be in awe of what we saw several chapters ago in Romans 5. that in, it, God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came for sin. By the way, Hebrews 4... Where, where I just read, where it says that he was without sin, it gives us a little bit of an application to this too. An, an application, what, what, what's something, something that we can do with the fact that Jesus came in the likeness of, of flesh, that he became man so that he could save us. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Just remember when you're tempted, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he did that for you. And he's the one that you can draw near to when you're in those times of need. Come near to the throne of grace. Confess your sin. Tell him about your temptations. Trust in him as the one who is strong and powerful, who fought all the way to the point of shedding his blood against the whole idea of sin. Draw near to him for strength. So we, we have Jesus as our redeemer in his person, and in his work. So we've been talking, when it says he he came in sinful flesh and for sin, well, that has to do with who he is. He is fully God and fully man, two natures, one person forever, our Redeemer, God the Son, that's who he is. And we also need to know what he has done, and it addresses that here as well. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, here's what he did. He condemned sin in the flesh. We call who Jesus is, we call that the person of Christ. What Jesus has done, we call that the work of Christ. What Jesus has done is condemned sin in the flesh. You know what deserved to be condemned? Me. You. But what did Jesus do? He came and condemned not us, but sin in the flesh. He came to take our sins on himself, put them away forever. Now one, one way that I think that it's talking about here is when it says condemned sin in the flesh, I think it has to do partly with how he lived a perfect life. In, in his perfect living, the only person who's ever lived in complete obedience to the full law of God, which he wrote, by the way, He showed in his humanity that obedience is the right standard and showed that it is right for sinners to be condemned. And yet the other thing that he did in his flesh in condemning sin in the flesh is that he took our sin on himself as the sacrificial lamb of God the sins of all of his people, all of the elect from before the foundation of the world, all of those sins were placed on Jesus' head as a sacrificial lamb of God so that Jesus could pay the full penalty of the wrath of God for all our sins so that you and I could be forgiven and free. Isn't that great? Here's the way that it's put in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake... He made him, that's God the Father, made God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. He took our sin on himself to the point that he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as he was being crushed for our iniquities, as he was dying for our sins according to the Scriptures. He took our sin on himself. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But, as it says later in that same chapter, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One of the ways that we talk about this is the term that if you've been around a while, you've heard me use it. Maybe you've heard it elsewhere as as well. The, The term we're talking about is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means he paid the penalty. Substitutionary means he substituted himself in our place. Atonement means he made the sacrifice that had to be made. He paid the penalty in our place to make the sacrifice, to propitiate the wrath of God, to turn God's wrath away so that we could have God's favor turned to us. This was preached 700 years before Jesus came from the mouth of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 where he says he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all guys the cross is the place where God's grace and God's justice start to make sense at the same time there's a statement back in Ezekiel excuse me Exodus 34 where God appeared to Moses and declared his name and declared his character and within that statement in Exodus 34 7 God said of himself that he is a God forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin which is great news But the next thing he says is, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Where you go, huh? How can those things be said right next to each other? Isn't that a contradiction? How can you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin and by no means clear the guilty? Well, you know where that comes together is the cross of Jesus. He did not clear you, guilty sinner. Your sin has not just been let go as though it didn't happen. It has been fully punished. He has by no means cleared the guilty. He has placed the guilt on his own son and carried out the death sentence for it. But in that death sentence, that's the same place where he forgives our iniquity, forgives our transgression, forgives our sin. The grace and the justice of of God have come together. Robert Haldane put it this way, the father condemns the son of his love so that he may absolve the children of wrath. That's us. Now Jesus, good news, Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus did what we could never do. If we go and try to pay for our own sin, that's an eternity in hell. Jesus, by being both fully man and fully God, in his person, in his power, was able in the one single act of righteousness of his death on the cross to fully pay for our sin for all eternity. And on the third day, he rose up victorious from the dead. And as we saw back in chapter one of Romans that he demonstrated himself to be the son of God in power in his resurrection from the dead. And so what do we receive from that by Jesus being our redeemer in his person, by being our redeemer in what he's done in his work? Well, we get the benefits. We get the benefits. You, you, you can't get the benefits by your work. You can't get the benefits by being good enough. You can't get the benefits by being, uh, you know, doing enough things or, or just being an, you know, a great enough, cheery enough guy. Jesus is the one who has earned righteousness and the benefits for us who couldn't do it because our weak flesh made the law ineffective in our lives. Jesus did it. This is, it goes to verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now, I'm going to point out two benefits that we who are believers in Christ receive in Christ. Two two benefits. There's a lot more benefits than this, all right? In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians 1, verse 3, that in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's a lot of benefits. And if you think, well, those are just in the heavenly places, that's just saying, there's nothing for me here and now, I just got to wait till I die to get the benefits, well, for one thing, that's not a very good way to think. Second thing, though, is in Second Peter 1.3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us every benefit in this life and every benefit in eternity. And he's done it in Jesus by his divine power. Here's two of the benefits here in this verse. The first one is this, a perfect record already complete for us is what it says in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, occasionally people read that and they think, well, that means that if I trust in Jesus, then I am going to start living in such a way that I perfectly obey the law. Well, I guess that's one way to read those words, but that would completely contradict everything else he said about the law, including just one verse ago you're not going to be in a place where all of a sudden, because you trusted in Jesus, that now you personally are fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. No, what he's talking about is this. He's talking about where Jesus has paid for our sins, and Jesus has given us his righteous record. It's not possible for us personally to fulfill the the requirements of the law, but you, you may notice it says here, it might be fulfilled in us. It doesn't say it will be fulfilled by us. It will be fulfilled in us. This is something that's given to us from the outside. When I was a a, a freshman in high school, I started taking German. I don't speak German, so I guess I didn't, you know, didn't stick. But my for some reason my my I was not the kind of kid who was like every teacher's favorite or something like that. But for some reason I was the German teacher's favorite, and so uh, I was really really shocked when my report card came and it said for German 100% average. And I I, I was going is this a mistake? Because I was looking back. It's not like I was a bad German student, but. I didn't have straight hundreds on the things that I had turned in and the tests that I had taken, and so I, I went to my German teacher and I said, "It, it says a, a hundred here," and she goes, "That's right," and that was just kind of it. And I thought that I don't know why this has happened. I guess I'm not going to turn it down, but uh, that was it was it was just hey, she just wanted to give me a perfect record. Now, she was close to retirement. I don't know. but, But it was given to me. And you might say, well, that was unjustly given to you. Okay. Well, it's not a perfect analogy. But Jesus has given us the perfect record that we did not have. If we were judged on our record, doom. But what Jesus does when we've been united to Christ is we are justified. We are counted as just. Jesus' righteousness is counted to us. I read the first half of 2 Corinthians 5.21 earlier where it said, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That means he took our record of sin on himself and went to the cross to pay for it. But then the second half of that verse says, so that in him we might become The righteousness of God. There's an exchange that Jesus made happen in being our Redeemer. He took our sin. He gives us his righteousness so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, not by us, but in us. Jesus has obeyed the Father perfectly in everything that he did in his active life. We call that his active obedience. He obeyed everything. He obeyed perfectly in his Passive obedience, where he suffered, had stuff done to him, went to the cross and died, but all of that comes to us. We benefit from it all to have a perfect record before our loving God and Father who sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He's paid it all. This is not, when it says it's a righteous requirement fulfilled in us, it's not our righteousness. It's an outside, it's alien it's not ours. It's weird, but it's ours, and it's Jesus's, and it's counted to us, and we rejoice at what he's done. Another thing that it says that he, he gives us is a new spirit-led way to live. This is the end of the, the verse there. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, some of you are thinking, well, to, to, really, to really get through that part, we're going to be here another hour, because not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, there's a lot in that. Yes, there is. And I'm just barely going to touch on it today because in the verses that we get to next week, it starts going really a lot deeper into what that looks like and what that means. But for now, I just want to say that what what this looks like is that when we come to Christ, that we're no longer going to cling to the values of this world. We're now going to cling to the values of Christ. We're no longer bound to walk by the flesh, whether that would be the indulgence of the flesh or a seeking to justify ourselves by the flesh, just those old things that you were stuck with before you had Jesus, before you were indwelt by his Holy Spirit, it says, hey, that's not the system we're in anymore. I think part of what Paul is saying is, yeah, just because Jesus paid for our sins, it doesn't mean that we're going to start living like, uh, you know, party animals or something. We're, we're going to walk by the Spirit. But, but I think he's really saying this is a whole new way of walking. It's a whole new way of walking. It's not the way of walking of saying, am I, am I obeying the law just perfectly or am I not obeying the law just perfectly? Am I, am I scoring points with God or am I not scoring points with God? Am I going to make it if I do this well enough or am I not going to make it? No, you've already made it. You have already been judged righteous in God's sight. So that God is not waiting around to see how well you perform to see whether you're going to make it in the end. Jesus has already performed it for you and now you're free by the grace of Jesus, no longer to walk by the flesh, but to walk by the spirit. You can see that, by the way, in people in this church, Especially, especially the people who came to Christ later in life. Um... You know, but there's, there's, there's less of a, a drastic life change if you came to Christ as a child, and I really want to encourage you to come to Christ as a child, okay? You don't want to wait until you need a drastic life change, all right? You, you're a sinner. Kids, you're sinners who need Jesus, and you can be saved now. But it's just amazing. I was even talking to one of our, our church members last night. Just Just what an incredible change there has been in his life since he came to faith in Jesus. I mean, it's not to say, well, now I'm going to show that I'm a good person. It's just the Spirit does His work. It's amazing what God does for us. This is a benefit that we receive from the finished work of Christ as this new Spirit-led way to live. As He said back in Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. This is because He's put His Spirit within us, He causes us to walk in His statutes, to obey His rules. That's Ezekiel 36. It's because as Christians we can walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh, as it says in Galatians 5. It's because we can now bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which are things that you can't make any law about, it says in Galatians chapter 5. God has given us so, so many benefits in Christ. So even in the way that we walk, even in the way that we live, even as we say, yes, I was converted long ago, and now I need to know how to live, even as we live, you need to keep on resting in God's finished work. You need to stay in the hot tub of the gospel and rest in the finished work of Christ even as you are going about your walk day to day, even as you're going about spiritual battle against sin, you need to rest in the finished work of Jesus because you can't be right with God by your own effort. All you can do is show the weakness of your flesh to make the law ineffective and condemning in your life. You can't do it by your effort, but you can come to Jesus in faith, receive His finished work, and rest in his finished work, and walk by his finished work. Let's pray. God, we thank you that Jesus has come in the likeness of our sinful flesh and yet without sin. I thank you that he has come as the offering for sin once and for all. And I thank you that he has bought the perfect benefits for us and given them to us as a free gift by faith alone. God, I pray that if there are those who need to come to faith in Jesus, I pray that what they need to understand is the basic truth of believing in Jesus and being saved. I pray that you would make that stand out in their ears and in their hearts and turn them away from the system of the flesh and the law and the world and all of those things. Turn them to the person of Christ. And God, us who have come to Christ, keep turning us to the person of Christ. Let us just live and rest in his finished work for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.